as seen by an everyday Nigerian in the diaspora. Okay, so today I'm asking why and how did the first Nigerian military coup happen? This was in 1966, by the way. But before we get into that, I want to introduce today's guest. He's a good friend, Eola Ajibola, and he's passionate about Nigerian and African history and is currently working on a project to share his findings and thoughts. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that. Now, we've already explored this topic kind of, sort of, separately um, until recently, so I had to have him on to discuss and challenge our shared understanding. Um, Lola, thank you for working with me on this. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself and maybe talk about what drew you to this, you know, to this subject? Uh, I'm sorry, man. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, Sabi Niger is uh, the name of my side project that I'm working on. Um, UNS Niger for short. Now that's Niger within nine. Um, we have a website in development and we have social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and tw Twitter. Uh, so uh, Osai and I actually met uh, in university in Canada. Uh, one of the side benefits of uh, quote-unquote Western university education is you learn how to research. So this is true. doing this, uh, I just found that there was lots of content that I never knew existed about Nigeria and Africa's history by extension. Uh, the primary content on the website that we cover are unfiltered articles and podcasts about contemporary issues affecting Nigeria, such as uh, accessible education, mass poverty and inequality, the current brain drain that's facing the country. And yeah, we're definitely gonna touch on talk talk about that whenever you're there. Please other other topics, you know, like the long-term effects of Nigeria receiving loans from the IMF and the World Bank. How does this affect average Nigerian, right? We also cover forgotten or ignored history, uh, such as the cool conversations we're, we're discussing today, uh, the one you and I are working on, Osai. We also uh -huh. cover visual art and the artists who create them, as well as other important personalities uh, within the African and Nigerian context. Obviously, from the name of our website, you could... Uh, tell that the primary focus will be on Nigeria. But the material we have access to covers all, lots of topics on Africa from pre-colonial days to present. So, you know, like to answer your question aside as to why I started this, uh -huh. it's, it's no news that Nigeria is fucked up, right? Or excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> The one news I'm facing challenges. Um, mm -hmm. But what I found interesting is, you know, there are, you know, tons of authors, researchers, political scientists, and activists who dedicated their lives basically to studying our problems and other African issues. And it's one thing to identify problems and issues, but these men and women have actually, you know, developed applicable and implementable solutions to these problems. But you don't hear any of their names when it comes to developing policy or implementing policy. Uh -huh. so, like, it, it sucks, but the fact is, most of our political apparatus at the moment is full of, of individuals out for themselves. And, you know, the the 
effects of this are that Nigerians, all Nigerians suffer, regardless of your status. Whether you consider education, infant mortality, women's rights, uh, corruption, you know, almost any topic, you know, the data suggests that Nigeria is getting worse, not better. So from an outside observer's perspective, outside you and I have the privilege of being in, living in Canada, right? Like calling Canada home or a second home, more or less. But from an outside observer's perspective, like I would like to think we're outside observers at this point. We're not, we're not in it. Like, absolutely. you know, and you know, it's not like we don't miss Nigeria, but you know, being outside it gives you a bit of benefit, especially when we have access to all this information, right? Like, you know, I'll say you you are an expert by now on Max Hillman's book, Soldiers of I mean, we're getting there. I just no, got no, the newest no. one. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's a challenge to be optimistic though, like from our perspective. Hundred percent. Especially when we're not on ground. We don't know because that's the thing, like I feel like there's so many challenges that, that weigh you down in Nigeria that you can't count all of them, you know? I feel like mm -hmm. what's going on politically and all the things we're hearing with whether it's Boko Haram, with the kidnappings, um, just with everybody essentially building their own regional military parties, I feel like, you know, that's just the icing on the cake. There are day-to-day -day challenges that everybody is also dealing with or fighting to overcome just to survive. You know, whether like, you know, whether it's dealing with the police on a day-to-day -day basis or not having consistent light, you know, like there's so many other things that make life hard that yeah. are beyond just the grandiose political, socioeconomic situation that we're talking about. Even to add to that point, it's like, with mm -hmm. all those, you know, we're just trying to survive every day. Where, when do you have the time to be researching socioecon socioeconomic problems or researching right. history, right? So right. when you just spend three hours on Third Mainland Bridge, yeah, you know, trying to get yeah, home, you know, you're tired. You're, yeah, you just want to sleep. So if anything, that's kind of what drove me to create you, you, you know, Sabi Niger, mm. where I could create an, a channel where I could offer all this information for free, and mm. you know, I don't believe Nigeria will change overnight, but my hope is you know, access to more knowledge about ourselves and our history will inspire other Nigerians and Africans to create the change they want to see. Because, you know, there are people fighting the good fight. You just don't really hear their stories, right? Right. They need to be supported and they need to be celebrated. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I want to jump from there. And I want to just ask you, okay, so this was your first time uh, on a podcast, right? Yeah. I, and I know it can be a little intense, but how how was the experience? <laughs> like you it know, was, just it was, getting into it. The experience was definitely uh, constructive, personally, uh, because you know, before the podcast, we had to research the material. So just getting familiar with the material alone. Mm -hmm. Lots of conversations, mm -hmm. lots of arguments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting it, but if anything, you know, it's 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 healthy in the sense that you and I. Hundred percent have differing opinions but we're able to disagree on certain issues while maintaining a healthy or a constructive conversation 100 percent, and we're working towards like you know like you said you want to inform people you want to you know you, you and we're also essentially trying to show and prove right we know that we're not specialists at this no. we know that there are people who have done the real work 
yeah. and try to contextualize it for people like us who might be interested, right? And I think we're just basically passing the baton along and saying, okay, we've seen this and we learned this and hey, check this out. And maybe and hopefully, you know, people can also take that and move on with it, you know, and, and apply that to whatever projects they're working on. Because, or even do you know, own research, right? And, you know, yeah. they might even see stuff we don't see. It's just to more or less generate interest and know like that change is possible. 100%. Like no matter how long it takes, because, mm-hmm. you know, so one of the things that's interesting to me is just that, you know, I found how much more, like I was reading, you know, like say we talk about my savings or all politics and violence, right? That's book uh, we kind of, that I, you know, we kind of started a conversation on. And, um, you know, I was reading that book and I was learning and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And at the same time I was reading it, that's when, you know, the October, to, um, you know, NSARS uh, movement essentially started, right? That basically just made me speed through the book and start kind of like consuming so much more. Right. So ever since then, though, I've been thinking a lot about like the sort of conversations that I would like to have concerning Nigeria, you know, and let me take this moment to just, you know, plug the last conversation I had. Right. This was it was called NSWOT Analysis um, on the podcast here. I'm, I explore the rules we may all have to play as Nigerians. Right. I think that process, I was asking myself a lot of questions like, OK, so I'm not in Nigeria. You know, I'm here. What's my business? Can I really speak to it? Because I, it's also this idea of, uh, you know, people outside Nigeria telling how Nigerians how they should approach or deal with certain issues, right? And I kind of tried to stay away from that. So I really just ultimately turned the question on myself, right? And one of the things I realized is that I discovered there was a gap in my knowledge. You know, I found that a lot of conversations too about Nigeria uh, and its history were often tribalistic or just simplistic or dismissive. And even on my part, and I just felt like I wanted to change that, you know, I wanted to approach it from, from a slightly different way. I mean, what have your observations been, like, whether it's before or after 2020? Um, my observations as to Nigeria in general or as to... Um, the conversations around Nigeria and its history, you know, like... like or, or, I guess my, my uh, main takeaway is there's almost no true... Uh, narrative that is or no how do I say it um, you and I like I know you had the privilege of going to Atlantico when you back when you were in Lagos I had the privilege of going to Green Springs School in Lagos and a lot of me as well some people would argue that these are one of the best schools in Nigeria but for sure, I'm sure you will agree with me that you know the education just didn't cover almost anything of relevance, like uh, as far as how to actually make our country better. It's, it was just more geared towards going abroad and getting right. a job or whatever. Right, or but like you know, or being STEM, being in STEM. You know, I think that was always like really big, really pushed. Like, you know, you didn't no nobody really took the you know what was that class government or you know. Mm-hmm class that seriously i mean from my knowledge anyway yeah or even if they did it's like what were they actually taught i guess that's my main uh takeaway it's like especially i don't know about our parents generation i don't have access to their curriculum but right. our generation for sure was denied that history 100 percent. So it was not prioritized maybe at all. in like the last six months like the, or the last year i've learned more about nigeria and its history. As far as I knew, Nigeria began in 1960, and before that, it was just nothing. You know, that that's the narrative that's pushed in 
in school, right? Like, you know, oh, we amalgamated and then, you know, but there's no context. There's no, like, personal motives. You don't know why, what this happened or what their agenda was. And with regards to the coup, uh, that would be my main, uh, the main reason I thought it was a solid topic to talk about because definitely, right. I, I mean, I'm sure you had heard about the 1966 coup as well. Mm-hmm. And so had I, but the narrative was, oh, it was a tribalistic coup perpetrated mm-hmm. by the Igbos against the Hausas. Right. There was a um, quote-unquote uh, revenge coup or counter coup um, six months later. But mm-hmm. when you're reading um, Maxion's book, you know, it's telling you that after the coup succeeded in the North, there were actual s- celebrations by Northerners. Um, there were Northern right. This, right, this was the first coup where they yeah, took out yeah. Amadou Bello and Tafar Balewa and all of that. Yeah, so which is very surprising. Yeah, especially, it's not even surprising as much as it goes fully counter to the narrative that it was a right. small coup. Exactly. And, you know, who was the leader of the northern execution of the coup, um, had northern soldiers with him that, you know, executed this coup with him. And he even had to restrain them at some point from killing other northerners because they felt that these northerners were corrupt. So that kind of context, I feel, is important for the average person to know that, you know, it wasn't just a tribalistic coup. Right. Okay. So, you know, I think for me anyway, like the intention I have here, and I'm curious what your, your, yours are as well, like what, what we want people to kind of go with. Um, I feel like, you know, these prejudices about uh, tribalism are often hard to avoid. Right. And I, but I believe like, you know, with the right context, there's an opportunity to break that pattern and discuss these issues a little bit more deeply, like you're saying, right? Like where we understand the characters, we understand the situation, and it doesn't become about whatever you believe in, what what your religion is, where your tribe is, and how, you know, how much how much you study the subject matter, you know? And, you know, in my head, and I'll, I'll, like this, I don't know if I discussed this with you, but my the approach was like loosely based on this concept of like the original position, Right. And it's also often referred to as the veil of ignorance. And it's like a thought experiment uh, created by John Rawls. And he exposed the ideas of like individuals forced to make a decision about their society without knowing what gender, race, sexuality, abilities, taste, class, and that they may fall into so as to make fair policies. But in this case, it allows us to observe these events in a similarly fair fashion. Right at least to the best of our ability, right? Like we're avoiding the idea of like, oh, okay, because I'm this tribe, I want to look at these guys good or look mm-hmm. at these guys, you know, bad. Like, let's just look at the situation and just see if, you know, we can understand why people will, you know, respond that way and what evidence is provided through their action, right? We have the benefit of looking at this in hindsight, you know, mm-hmm. so we can we can see the situation a lot better. And I think that opportunity is, you know, that's essentially what, I was going for, and I know you know we, we we kind of talked about that. But is there anything you want to add to that in terms of how you wanted people to connect with the with the material? It's um, exactly as you're saying, right? It's just a like you know the saying goes, "High side is twenty twenty. It's like mm-hmm. a, 
At the time, there was no internet, but this coup was carried out in three different parts of the country, right? So it's like, but at the time, you can imagine some people didn't even hear about it till days after the fact. So it's just, again, providing context as to the events that led up to it, the personal positions of the people that carried it out, and what their intentions were. Okay, that's that's great. So, okay, so um, now I want to talk about the approach. So I felt like to effectively have this conversation, it was important to understand the origins. You know, how did Nigeria get into its current predicament? Like, Because it was interesting, right? Like, we started off wanting to talk about the coup conversations, right? The coups themselves. Mm-hmm. But as we started unpacking that, we started realizing that, like, we kind of need to go back, you know? And, like, the going in the questions that I'm having in my head is, like, you know, how did Nigeria get to this current predicament where, like, there's a complete lack of trust in those who are in position to serve us, from the police officers through to the military, and finally in legislative and executive office, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then to point, like, to the point that, like, different regions are taking up arms to defend their sovereignty, right? So this isn't, this isn't a new phenomenon. And when you understand the context of the country, you kind of understand why. And this is also the case in many countries around the world, right? Even the so-called, you know, developed ones. So I feel like, you know, I wanted to discuss that prologue aspect to January 15, um, 1966, because, you know, that political climate in 1960, right around um, uh, independence and the three major political parties and regional parties, like, you know, what informed their formation, I think, becomes really important, right? What were the ideologies and what were their, the, the basis of the alliances? You know, like, I think that sets the, the stage for us to go into the, the military rule itself and understand what those major changes and the political dynamics ultimately give us. So that's kind of where I'm sitting with that. Are there any key questions you think the listeners should go into this uh, episode with? Um, a key question would be, what ties, you know, the past and the present? Um, mm. Like, uh, or if there are any ties, and definitely there are, like just from what you and I have researched. Um, another question would be, uh, I guess, how do those quote-unquote tribalistic thoughts and uh, tribalistic ideologies, like how do we as individuals perpetuate that? You know, like, uh, I'm just going to be honest here. You know, growing up, I know my parents were definitely somewhat tribalistic. And it's like, you know, we hope that our generation would not be. But definitely, you know, there are signs that our generation is almost just as tribalistic. But if we don't start thinking for ourselves, like... And I mean, every like it sounds crazy, but every Nigerian, right? Because the effects, at least the negative ones, are felt by every Nigerian. I'm sure you you being living in Canada, like I mean, these days, you know, it's kind of cool to be African. Thank God for Bonner Boy and Whiskey. Actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank God for Afrobeats. Huh? Thank God for Afrobeats. <laughs> like you know, at least adding a bit of positivity to what it meant to be Nigerian or African. But you, you've definitely experienced, oh, you know, where they basically, they ask ridiculous questions. Like, do you, 
do you live in trees? All that kind of stuff. So there's also an international perception of Nigeria and Nigerians. But then those negative effects, like, you know, access to just electricity, water, healthcare, those affect Nigerians on a day-to-day. And, you know, we're probably dying in the thousands just because those issues have never been addressed. So if everyone can take some responsibility, that might change. Oh, very well said. Okay, so I think that's enough to let people go in. But one last thing, we made our best efforts to focus on the facts and objective analysis from historians, researchers, and political scientists alike. For those who are curious, we provide those references at the end. As you may suspect, this one is loaded, but let's be honest, how could it be? Enjoy the show. and exploitation and therefore you are bound to have corruption institutionalized many criminal cases are settled in police stations this is nigeria look how i'm living up look how i'm living up everybody be criminal this is Nigeria. Look how we live in Look what we get in Everybody be criminal. This is Nigeria. Just because I'm on TV now. Person we no get work is checking to see if my watch is original. This is Nigeria. Where am Madam Philomena? Money vanished for your office. 36 million. You tossing an animal. This is Nigeria. Never any recession. Of- Okay, uh, welcome to the Cool Conversations, and I'm sitting here with Eilola uh, Jibola from Unosabinash.com, and we're essentially discussing uh, the prologue to the first coup in Nigeria, which was in January 15, 1966. Uh, the whole point of this conversation is to really establish the political climate uh, and some of the conditions that may have led to that first military coup. It's um, before we get and jump into those particular conversations, it's important to know and understand where uh, Nigeria was, uh, what kind of frustration was going on that would have given rise to, to this conversation. So I think we need to start with uh, the political climate between 1960 and 1966, right? But particularly at 1960, like one of the things that are interesting to me is just how did Nigeria celebrate independence in 1960 and six years later, completely devolve into uh, essentially what would be a coup and military rule, right? Um, and I think it's important to establish that there were three major political parties who were structured in the parliamentary system, similar to like the UK and Canada. Um, so those two, three major parties were the MPC, the Northern People's Congress, um, uh, the AG, Action Group, and the NCNC, which was the National Council of Nigeria and the Cameroons, but later, after independence, became the National Council of Nigeria um, citizens. So I think we should basically start with the NPC first, because at this point, they were the most influential. And uh, I think their history also serves a, a lot of interest and context as to maybe what would have caused some of the frustrations that went down the line. Um, thank you for having me, Osai. <clears throat> With regards to the NPC, the 
Northern People's Congress, as it was called, uh, actually formed on the basis of the Bauchi General Improvement Union. That was the organization that predated it, and most of its membership eventually formed the basis of the NPC. According to Toyin Falola in his book, A History of Nigeria, he describes that the founders of the NPC sought to promote Northern unity to maintain regional autonomy in the North in the face of what seemed like impending Southern domination. This was due to the fact that the Southerners were more educated um, in Western education and the fact that the North preferred British colonialists over their Southern neighbors. Um, there are numerous quotes by uh, the head of the MPC or the leader of the MPC, which was Ahmad Bilo, that attested this fact. And <clears throat> there are numerous quotes by the head of the MPC that attested this fact. And uh, they did not wish to challenge the political structure or the political status quo in the North. Um, as opposed to the rest of Nigeria, where the nationalist movements were actually based, like, getting a foothold, right? They were, they were getting a yeah, foothold. they were getting a yeah. foothold. So, what's interesting to me about um, MPC, right, is that um, I think compared to the other parties, like you suggested, they they were more interested. They had a more conservative leaning leadership, right? And and I think what 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 I mean by that is. Uh, the MPC's goal was really to ensure the uh, the maintenance of the elites in the north, right? So when they went around and formed their uh, party, it was with the intent that they would preserve the way of life um, of how things were because it perfectly suited uh, the northern leadership at that point in time. Uh, it's also important to note that like uh, the northern leadership uh, had long been theocratic. It was uh, coupled with not just religious, but also political leaders like uh, Amadou Bello, for example, was the Sardana and the Sultan of Sokoto, but was also the leader of the Northern People's Congress, right? So he and, and the premier of the, of the Northern region. So a, a lot of the, those people in power, the emirs and uh, I mean, all over the North, essentially were looking to consolidate their power within the MPC. Now, it's important to note that there were, there were other parties in the North that really didn't want to, you know, that, that maybe weren't as an aligned, but we'll get into that later, like the nephew and uh, yeah. I think UMBC. But, um, but so what, what, like, one of the biggest thing for me is that it also seemed like the MPC was never really interested. I won't say that they were never really interested, but like they were never really interested in becoming independent or forming a, a country, right? Like in 1953, when uh, Antonio Anahoro uh, basically submitted a, uh, a petition or I don't think that's the right word, but basically for independence in 1956, uh, Action Group and NTNC, who were really on the opposing sides uh, at that period of, in time, uh, were an agreement to essentially push for independence. It was just the MPC that opted to pull out, which also caused a lot of resentment between the North and the South um, as a result of that decision. Uh, what, what's your perspective on that, man? Um... Well, if you go back to pre-colonial times, um, you need to remember that the British, the form of government or the form of representative leadership they preferred was the sole native authority, which was basically installing one 
local chief, emir, king, leader, whatever you want to call it. And that leader is in charge and only answers to the British and pushes their interests or their agenda. So this aligns very well with the Northern theocracy, as you mentioned, where it's more of a top-down hierarchy, as opposed to the East or um, the the Southeast or the Southwest, where at least before colonialism, uh, it was more egalitarian, more democratic, more uh, representative of the different um, different regions in the area. Like, uh, so um, just that the the action group, for instance, started in particular to push back against that sole native authority. So this will be its basis for nationalism, where it wants us to, you know, um, determine the course of the future of the Southwest. I imagine a similar notion was pushed in the East as well. But in the North, they didn't push back because they enjoyed the sole native authority or SNA um, hierarchical structure. Right. I mean, I I think it's important to note, right, uh, just to add context to what you're saying, is that... um, that sole native authority strategy had also been used in the South as well, but that was, I think, way earlier on. Yeah. Um, with, uh, you know, with the rise of the nationalist movements and things like that, even before that, you know, following the world wars and everything, mm-hmm. uh, that started to evolve as uh, the Southerners became more and more educated and had more agency. So uh, as a result of that, there was a gradual, a general push uh, for more, uh, I guess, rights within our government, within the government, within the British government, and pushing for basically a phasing out of, of, of British presence and control in a way that never existed in the North. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me. So, like, so that, that brings up another point that I, that, that I came across um, uh, while we we're doing research. So in 1914, Frederick Lugard was able to secure the amalgamation of the North and the South, uh, um, largely due to the fact that the emirs wanted that, uh, demanded that no missionaries would be allowed in the, in the, in the region. Now, the missionaries, you know, who are obviously preaching religion, were also carrying education to the, to the masses. So in the north and south, they had essentially free reign, which is also part of what, you know, contributed to the evolution of thoughts and that push for nationalism um, in the southern part of Nigeria in a way that it didn't really exist in the north. Matter of fact, they were only restricted to Christian regions within the north. And the only people that really effectively utilized it were people who were of, you know, maybe Christian uh, religious background or some of the northern elites, right, who, who began to understand that um, that Western education would, could be effectively leveraged to sustain and protect their leadership. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, that essentially changed. That, that didn't change all the way through, right? Like, that did not change all the way through to um, the nationalist movement. I think when it got to that period was when uh, there was now a little bit more of an opening to that kind of to to that t- sort of education or Western education. What do you have any perspective on that, or like, did you find anything in your research? Um, in my research, again, uh, what I found was the amalgamation of Nigeria in itself didn't was not in the interest of Ni- quote unquote Nigerians or its or its or its citizens. It was more from the British perspective done in order to balance the books. Um, in 1913, when uh, 
Lord Lugard or Frederick Lugard pitched it to, I imagine, Lord Harcourt. Um, I'm not sure what his first name was. Uh, his proposition. Was Apparently, yeah. was a pedophile. Yeah, no doubt. But Port Harcourt, though. <laughs> in, in any case, <laughs> in any case, um, Southern Nigeria had a revenue of 2.25 million pounds. So its government was running a surplus at that time. However, Northern Nigeria, which was larger in population and larger in size in land mass, only had a revenue of 500,000 pounds. And out of that 500,000 pounds, 70,000 pounds was from customs income from the South. So that was a grant granted to the North by the South. So it wasn't performing well fiscally, <clears throat> but Lagarde felt to balance the books for the whole region. It would make sense in uniting the region so as to <clears throat> more or less equalize both regions. So just adding that context, one can see how it wasn't necessarily beneficial to unify the country, especially on the basis that a large swath of the North and at least for sure its theocratic elite weren't in support of Western education, which would um, have led to a more equal society. And when I say that, I mean, you could look at the leadership of the North, which was led by Amado Bilo, who was more or less born into a long line of theocrats, as opposed to the Southwest and Southeast, where Namdi Azikwe and um, Obafemi Awolowo rose to power. And when I say rose to power, I mean they rose to power. They actually worked for a living and uh, held a number of jobs before they were able to pay their way through school and uh, come back to Nigeria and more or less spearhead the nationalist movement. Right. So, I mean, so, I mean, to your point, I, I do understand and respect that, but to, you know, I'll, I'll speak towards, um, not in Almado, but those different, um, defense, but just understanding the culture behind him, right? Because the, the North basically looked to Saudi Arabia as a aspiration for what kind of government they could be. And I think the South, East and West, um, persisting of the East and West, essentially looked to the Western uh, world, which is maybe the US or a UK, um, and you know, maybe even uh, Canada, uh, uh, as, as a basically the form of government that they wanted to exist in. So Amadou Bello's interests were always essentially um, focused on protecting that ideology or that, that, that system of their government and leadership, right? But uh, you spoke about you know, the education part that caused that disparity in terms of um, not everybody be on e equal footing. So let's go a little bit more into that, right? So now we talked earlier about the fact that uh, the, um, Amadou Bello rejected uh, the motion to, for independence in 1956 or by 1956. And I think the big issue there was they, they had essentially realized at that point that they were behind the ball when it came to representatives in uh, civil service and maybe even, uh, you know, economic positions uh, in, the, in the country, even in the north. So in, for what, during the period of the British, uh, I guess, presence and colonialism, uh, they, they, because of the lack of education in the north, the British uh, colonialists essentially used uh, people from the South to fill those positions. And a lot of those were Easterners, right? They were people from, from the Igbo region of the country. So 
what uh, we started to see as the push for nationalism began to really solidify, we started to, they, they started to notice that a lot of those positions that um, were in uh, were sitting underneath the British were basically going to be taken over by uh, Southerners, which uh, did not sit well with them. So uh, once that motion was pushed and it was understood that uh, uh, independence would essentially happen sometime in the near future, they be began to northernize uh, their institutions and essentially their government. And what we mean by that is that they decided to fill people with, um, uh, fill those roles or fill those, those, those institutions essentially with more northern people, right? And they even decided to push for a little bit more education to essentially drive up the number of educated people who could fill those positions. So basically, once independence came and they understood that they couldn't avoid it, uh, Amadubello essentially just wanted to buy time to fill those positions to a point where he would be comfort comfortable when we do find, um, you know, we do uh, get our independence. Is that a perspective that you had, or, or, um, or is there anything you want to add from there? I won't say I uh, necessarily arrived at that conclusion. From my, from what I understand, especially considering the 1953 census and the 1962 census, which are uh, which, you know, one is before independence, one is after independence. Uh, I would suggest that Ahmad Bailey wasn't necessarily con uh, concerned with having Northerners in positions of, in educated positions as much as having Northern political, a Northern political majority. Okay, so next. Next, um, I guess we should talk about the Action Group, right? Um, Action Group essentially was started by uh, Obafemi Awolu, Chief Obafemi Awolu, and uh, initially was started in, I believe, uh, he, he started off as Egbeoma Oduduwa in 1945, right? I think this was while he was in um, school um, in the UK, I guess studying law. Uh, that essentially evolved into uh, Action Group in March 1951. And their goal right from um, 1945 was to essentially unite uh, the Yoruba people. Uh, in, why do you think it was important for them to do that in that case? Because I think their situation is a little bit um, more unique um, compared to the North. Um, <clears throat> I think it will be primarily because the Yoruba have a long history of infighting that goes back to the 19th century. Um, as far as the Oyo Empire being the primary power in what we'll call southwest nigeria today and they used that power to dominate the rest dominate and uh in some cases enslave the rest of the population so uh <clears throat> most of uh what we'll call today your best states are just people who more or less fled the oil empire and its domination to um, that's, that's interesting. So, uh, so you, you're basically suggesting that that history persisted through colonialism, and and essentially found saw that there would be a need to essentially unite under one, you know, one party. Yeah, not just one, not just power. one, not just. I'll say it's consolidating power as much as he saw like within Yoruba society there was already inter-ethnic conflict and he thought 
or he assumed education would be a cure for that to some extent, where if everyone had some level of education, tribalism will reduce among the Yoruba. And uh, that more or less evolved into a nationalist idea for like a Yoruba nation. That's how I understand it. Okay, that's, and that's interesting because um, he did eventually uh, effectively implement some sort of uh, free education um, around the region. Uh, it also took, I think, you know, it also basically meant a hike in taxes for people in the Western region, which uh, I believe the NCNC effectively used against them later on. Okay, uh, so another point to add to that would be mm-hmm. that, again, I mentioned earlier the sole native authority um, structure that the British utilized in Nigeria or in colonial Nigeria. So this was something that caused a lot of conflict between the chiefs and because the, they would give one king precedence over the rest of the the rest of the uh, political structure or the native right. political structure. So this caused a lot of friction where you know some chiefs got drunk with power and definitely corrupt. And a good case for that would be the Abel Kuta the king of Abelkota, Alake Ademola II, who was eventually deposed by, because of a tax he imposed on market women. But even after he was deposed, the British went ahead and reinstalled him a short while later. So you can see how that goes against the wishes of the people and how that would, uh, you know, cause unity just because they're opposed to the colonial government. And opposed right. to the structure they're imposing on them. Yeah. So basically, they reinstated him because they were the reason why he increased those taxes. Yes. Right. Um. I'm I'm curious. So the market women protesting was this? Uh, was Fumilayo Ransomekuti involved in that? Yeah. Um, she was. Action? She actually was like the more or less the the leader, de, de facto leader and right. instigator, because she was she, you know, she was educated, so. She saw value in them, and she was a proud Abel Kota and Yoruba woman. So she saw the value of the, you know, market women, quote unquote. In my opinion, they were more entrepreneurs than market women. But right, absolutely. And those taxes were basically passing off all the additional costs to them. Yeah, right? and this was and this was after World War Two, right? So it was, it was already a period where Nigeria had given and given and given. It had given lives it had given money it had given literally all its food <laughs> to which had caused inflation in nigeria because we're literally feeding british troops <laughs> yeah and the, yeah, that's that's actually such a great point and the context context to that too is that um these guys the, the, basically following the war the british uh, monarchy was broke and they were essentially using the colonies to you know essentially pay off their debts right yeah. or i guess lift off their debts so okay so i think we kind of Unpacked action group, its genesis, and essentially what led Awolowo to essentially be- begin his party. Um, let's jump into the National Council of Nigerian Citizens, right? This is obviously post independence. Um, uh, so they initially were started by Herbert Macaulay in 1944, and uh, Nambi Azikiwe succeeded him in 1947, shortly after Herbert Macaulay's death, all right? Um, I think. It was the most multi-ethnic based uh, 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 political party 
in Nigeria. Matter of fact, at the time of um, uh, Herbert Macaulay's death, they were essentially on a nationwide tour uh, looking to promote the NCNC and look for more unions and essentially uh, coalition partners. What's your perspective on um, how the NCNC started and maybe a little bit about um, their ideology from, from your research? Um, from what I understand, the NCNC started or was an offshoot of the, rather the pre, the primary basis of the NCNC was the Igbo Federation. I'm pretty sure it was called the Igbo Federation. What I'm, okay, so I'll read read you something I have here, right? Uh, The National Council of Nigerian and the Cameroons, which later became known as the National Council of Nigerian Citizens, was led by Herbert Macaulay and Dr. Nnamdi Azikiwe. The party received the support of Nigerian workers by its overt support for their cause during the strike of 1945. Until 1951, the NCNC was the only political party which claimed to be national. It was later identified with the Igbos of Eastern Nigeria, right? And this is this, this is following the 1948 maybe uh, you know contest and everything kind of devolving from there. Um, I'll just say it was a it was just a Igbo dominated more or less, but. <clears throat> In any case, I was going to use that to suggest how when we, because, you know, uh, Herbert Macaulay died before independence. So when uh, Nabdi Azikwe will be taking leadership of the NCNC, and especially after the, after independence, it will become more ethnically aligned. Like, so even to your point that you just said, say it was later recognized to be dominated by Igbos or more recognized to be an Igbo party or something like that. I don't remember what you just said. Yeah, no, no, yeah, right. So I'm saying like eventually it would have become more ethnicized or more... Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, so So just to add to, to what your point, I think one of the key reasons for that, right, was because of, um, there, was, there was a really uh, big clash between the action group and... Uh, the uh ncnc in 1948 like it almost went mm-hmm. into uh it, it almost got violent i think it actually become, became violent where both parties marched into the state house in lagos essentially threatening each other right that's because now the Azikwe loyalists started the yoruba federation union in 1948 which was more or less in competition with the because uh, the action group hadn't quite formed yet so that caused a lot of tension between both, <clears throat> both, uh, and I'll even see more to kind of solidify Namdi Azikwe's commitment to the Igbo nation will be how he left the NCNC leadership, as far as I remember, to go and be premier of the Eastern region. So that kind of made it very the political competition very regional and very ethnic in its ideology as opposed to ideological. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to pull a quote out now that, that's very, very interesting, right? Um, one of the striking features of Nigerian politics between July and September 1948 was Igbo-Yoruba hostility. At the height of the tension, radicals on both sides descended upon Lagos markets and bought up all available machetes or machetes. At a well-attended meeting in Lagos, the Igbos declared that any attacks on the person of Dr. Azikiwe would be interpreted as attacks on the Igbo nation because if a hen, Azikiwe, were killed, the chickens, the Igbos, would uh, would be exposed to danger. Indeed, Dr. Azikiwe virtually declared war on the Yoruba nation when he declared 
The time has come for real action. Henceforth, the cry must be one of battle against Igbeyama Oduduwa, its hmm. leaders at home and abroad, uphill and down downdale in the streets of Nigeria and in the residences of its advocates. It is the enemy of Nigeria. It must be crushed to the earth. There is no going back until the fascist organization of Sir Adeyemo has been dismembered, right? So there was a lot of contentions because of, um, you know, uh, essentially what seemed to be the Nigerian youth movement and uh, factions within the Nigerian youth movement, right? Uh, and I'm not, we're not saying all of this to basically bring up ethnic tensions, right? That's not the case here. No, I and even in any, in any, just to your point, um, the ethnic tensions were both ways. Even if uh, right. Amanda Bailo, or sorry, Nandi Azuko, you might have said, He's, uh, you know, explicitly said he's against the Egbe Omodutuwa. I'm sure if you look far, well enough, you will find quotes by Obafemi Olowo that are very tribal in nature. Right, and I think, and I think it was just the nature of those elections because there were a lot yeah. of pre- it was it was essentially a press war, right? That's that's really what was going on there, and that essentially escalated, right? So the, the point we're making here, and the reason why this will be important later, is that um these tensions between both um groups, even though they were, you know, I guess in terms of the fight for nationalism, they were aligned, uh, really fractured that relationship and stopped them from being able to form any sort of coalition for what would essentially be like a decade, right? Um, so I think we've unpacked all the three major parties, a little bit of their relationship as well um, with each other. Uh, I think what's next is um, what I'm curious, right? When what did you think of the fact that uh, when we essentially had, uh, when NPC won the majority of the seats, right? Uh, and I think it's also important to kind of frame exactly how many seats were available and how, what the disparity look like. Because when you see that, I think it also informs the campaign style of each of the parties, right? So, for example... Uh, uh, at, at, in 1959, by 1959 elections, there were 312 seats available to essentially be contested, right? What's interesting to me is that there were 174 seats in the north out of the 312, which is essentially over 50%. And the east had 72 seats and the west had 63 seats. There were three seats available in Lagos as well, right? So this all brings it to a total of 312. My thing is, the MPC essentially, like, and like, so the MPC ended up winning 142 se- seats. The NCNC and uh, essentially the NEPU, which is uh, a minority party from the north, uh, won 89 seats, and Action Group won 73 seats. Right? And then there were independents who won roughly eight seats. The most interesting to me is that, like, NCNC and Action Group essentially won seats, like, in each region. Right, they you know whether it was a lot or not, they won seats in each region. The NPC only campaigned in the north and basically secured their majority with just campaigning in the north. So out of the 174 seats available in the north, 142 basically went to NPC, 24 went to Action Group, and eight went to uh, NC, the NCNC um, NEPU coalition or partnership, right? And basically, uh, the eight NEPU uh, representatives within that party were essentially what won. So to me, I think there's a huge disparity there where there's a huge problem I, I can see brewing when uh, one party essentially does not have to campaign uh, or, or seek any support from the rest of the country apart from its own region, 
right? In a way that the other parties don't can't afford to, right? I think that gives an incentive to appeal to people of all regions, right? In a way that it would never really occur to NPC to do that. How, how do you feel about that structuring? I, I know you already spoke to the census, but maybe you can elaborate on, on how that, you know, if, you know, might have affected, uh, you know, things. I feel definitely, uh, all your points. I agree with all your points. The only thing I'll add is, you know, just comparing the NTNC and the MPNC and the MPC rather. The NTNC, even in its name, had National Council for Nigerians on the Cameroons, right? right. The NPC is the Northern People's Congress. It's more or less founded to cater to Northern elite interests. And I feel this was really... Less, and what's important to note is the um, Premier of the North, who was uh, Amadou Bello, was also the head of the NPC. Mm-hmm. So those are two key positions. And then his deputy was Tafawa Belewa, who was our first prime minister. And that position was created for him. It is important to note that Amadou Bello turned down the role of president, which was more or less a figurehead role. Of oh, oh, prime minister, you mean? No, it was, it was president. And then gave it to uh, Namdi Azikwe in the... NCNC NPC coalition. Okay, wait, wait, hold up, hold up. I got a question about that. That's interesting. So my understanding was that um, Amadubelu was just not interested in basically. He wasn't interested in the country. He wasn't interested in the country. So that's as far exactly as, what I'm trying to say. North. Okay, so so um, I'm curious. Are you saying that like even after the prime minister position he had basically given to his deputy Tafawa Balewa um, was done? You're saying that the president position was too up for grabs for him, and he also yeah. rejected that as well. He also rejected that, like his position in the MPC, gave him the opportunity to be president. And as far right. as like, the research I've read, he rejected okay. that. Because, and, because my, my impression was that the president was like a figurehead position. It is because a figurehead because even Namdi didn't really have any influence, as he would find, as he would find that we will find out later. It de- definitely, you're 100% correct. And I feel that's what I was saying was more to the line of if Amadou Bello or which will be the NPC leadership had any interest in, you know, the rest of the country, he would have participated in the rest of the country in the form of the presidency, but he did not and preferred to be the premier of the Northern region. Yeah. And the head of the NPC and the Sardana of Sokoto. Three very key <laughs> positions, you know. So right. that, in any case, you know, it's worth just respecting his understanding of power. Yeah, I think I think what's very clear, and I think we discussed this before, is that like uh, Amadou Bello definitely was an astute politician, right? He understood the levers of power and kind of knew. He seemed to know where exactly where threats were and effectively quelled them. We've essentially talked about the three parties, their relationships, um, and I think one last thing we should talk about, though, uh, regarding the parties, like at that level, was uh, the coalition. Uh, 
MPC had 142 seats, NCNC and NPU had 89 seats, the Action Group had 73 seats, and Independence had 8 seats, right? So a coalition between NCNC, NEPU, and Action Group would essentially have secured a majority. But due to the um, due to the free relationship that had existed between Action Group and NCNC, that didn't seem to be an option. And NTNC essentially moved to be minority, um, uh, uh, a I guess the junior coalition partner with uh, the MPC. Um, how do you think that affected things? You know, moving forward. And you know, do you have any other additional thoughts on like what informed that alliance? I feel, well, the NTNC, in my opinion, this is more opinion than based on any evidence. I imagine. <clears throat> Just because the nationalist movement was led by the NCNC and the NPC, sorry, the Action Group and the NCNC, and as you mentioned earlier, the NPC, the NCNC, and the Action Group had already developed animosity among each other. There was no genuine or you know explicit animosity between the NPC and the Action Group, and the, or the NPC and the NCNC. So it was more. I think there was actually some animosity between the NPC and the Action Group, like prior to nine, like like for after nineteen fifty seven. It seemed like uh, that that's idea. What I mean, that's right, what I'm saying. I'm saying okay. that's after because you you were talking about nineteen forty eight, right? Well, this is when the animosity between the NCNC and the. No, no I'm talking about like a, like independence, the coalition between an independence. That's what I'm getting at. I'm okay. saying. Sorry. I'm saying the NCNC. Would have it would have been a, a case of keep your um or the enemy you know right because right. they know <clears throat> they knew there was existing animosity with the action group which had just not been escalated with the Northern People's Congress so I feel on that basis and on the basis of recognizing that the North had political power in the form of its population and um, parliamentary seats. The NCNC made the smart move of aligning with them. Interesting. Yeah, uh, interesting. Because, like, I, I was of the mind that, like, if, if the NCNC and Action Group were able to find some sort of common ground, especially when they both were actively pushing for nationalism, that um, there would have been an effective majority and not necessarily completely dominated the NPC, but have been able to keep that power in check. So I think 100%. What, what, what ultimately ends up happening after, as we'll see, is that um, there was effectively no way to keep that power in check anymore. 100%, you're right. And I feel that comes more down to the egos of men, where Awolowo and Duda Azikwe had personal beef. And they both led respective parties, one in right. the Southwest, one in the Southeast. Right. And at the same time, we're competing for each other's regions. Not just competing for each other's regions, but um, <clears throat> in 1954, I believe, um, is when the NCNC gained a majority in the Western region. That's when the Action Group lost the majority in its own region because of <clears throat> the tax. You had mentioned earlier that Aulawa imposed on the Western region. Right. So... Uh, for free education, and that was led, the charge of that uh, opposition was led by Namdi Azikwe in what would seem like a political move to consolidate more seats for the NCNC. But again, 
if you fast forward to 1960, Nigeria started exporting oil in 1958. So this is the time when there's fresh revenue in the country's pockets, more or less. Um, the political class is being created. So not only is it uh, a fight for ideology anymore, it's a fight for actual political power and its associated benefits. So with that in mind, especially if Namdi Azikwe is representing the Igbo nation or the Igbo people, it does make sense to align with the NPC, which is the power in control. Right. Uh, okay. That, that, that'll be my opinion. Okay. All right. So um, I think next uh, we should basically explore uh, the impact of the 1962 census, right? So now you've spoken um, earlier about how uh, no, most of the census or no census in Nigeria has ever been, uh, what's it called, agreed upon or... Yeah. or or uh, and this is including this is prior to us being having independence, right? So this is prior to 1962, and um, I think there's some interesting figures that you came across that I really would love for you to share. Um, just in terms of how the trajectory of um, population increase, comparing the north and the south, right? And I think you have I don't know how far back you had. I know you spoke about some figures from 1911, but um, I, I go I guess I think uh, the first census to actually count or attempt to count the everyone in the in what we will call Nigeria today was in nineteen twenty one. But I don't think we need to go that far back. If we just start from nineteen fifty three, which would be the first census or the last census during prior to our first election. Oh no, that was prior to prior to independence. Right. Prior to independence. And uh, the sixty two uh, census, which will be after our first census after independence. The main difference between those two as I mentioned earlier, is in 1953, would have still be paying tax to the colonial government who decided everything. And the downward bias will exist in that um, census count because people will want to be taxed less, no matter right. their region. But the 1962 census would have determined the amount of um, parliamentary seats you're going to get the amount of rep political representation you're going to get, the amount of development you're going to get in the form of electricity, pipe-borne water, the amount of development, and the amount of federal expenditure. So it made sense for people to increase their numbers. So the initial census counted um, 22.01 people in the north and 23.28 million in the south. So this is 1962. And this would have meant the South had a majority. So the initial census, even though it was conducted by the NPC-led government, was also rejected by the NPC-led government because the results didn't come back in their favor. That would be what the facts point to. There was okay. a <clears throat> I, I do want to point out that you know there, there is other text that suggests that um, the, the, the population increase in the south, in the southern region, was also quite significant. Yeah, it was. Um, so, 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 in other words, I think you know, in their defense, again, and I'm not really speaking. I'm just trying to be objective here, right? Mm. Um, that the NPC essentially noticed that that increase in population in the south wasn't uh, realistic, or they didn't feel like it was realistic, and they felt like it might have been doctored, mm -hmm. right? So that might have also influenced uh, their 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 concern about that, those election numbers. 
Well, that's what that's why I said uh, that's why I said you know before that there was the reason why people want to inflate their figures are because of the federal expenditure, right? Development, parliamentary seats, and so forth. Okay, so so uh, so the bias yeah. was the bias was upwards, but it was for the for everyone. Everyone was right. it was in their interest to have more people. Okay, so so essentially that that catch up from the from the from the southern region in their numbers compared to the north basically would have meant that there would have been a more even disparity between the north and the south in terms of parliamentary seats, right? So what what exactly did um the NPC leadership do right after? Because my 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 perspective, well, what I they, saw was that they rejected it and called for a recount. Okay, so. So I read somewhere, right, that mm-hmm. it was a verification that happened prior to like the official recount where they mm-hmm. found eight point five million new people in the north. Yep. So 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 even when that recount was really proposed, they had already decided found the eight point five million new voters in the north. Is that your perspective? Or was that eight point five million found after they conducted another election? Um means census, right? Sorry, um, census, yes. No, I think uh, you know. Um, in this case, the history is not black and white at all. And we can't, you know, rely on any of the numbers as factual because of the political interests that will be involved. There's some um, articles I've read that suggest that the numbers were arrived at more through negotiation than actual counting. Mm-hmm. And that's between the elite, the quote-unquote um, newfound political class. But... <clears throat> Just going right. between even the 1962 and the 1962 census and the 1963 recount, in 1962, we had a total population of 45.3 million people. In 1963, one year later, the North came out with that additional 8.5 million you're talking about and went from 22.01 to 29.78 million. <gasps> and the South went from 23.28 to 25.88. So in one year, the South gained um, about 3 million people, but the North gained nearly 10 million people. And the total population for the country rose from 45.29 to 55.6 million, which is a growth of 23% in one year. So, <laughs> you know, you, that's, what, that's what I mean by I wouldn't rely on any of the numbers as factual. Right, and, right, and and speaks to your point about like it's never been agreed upon in terms no. of in in terms of uh, of having a census. So no. um, I think what's important to note here, though, is that the relationship between um the uh the NPC and the NCNC essentially started to fracture from here. Yeah, so the NCNC bitterly opposed the ratification of the new census figures, but failed to prevent um, prevent them becoming official. Akintola, who was in the pocket of the MPC, accepted the figures on behalf of the Western region, while the newly formed Midwestern region premier, Dennis Osadebe, uh, accepted the figures for the sake of national unity. So that's why I agree with 100% of that. I feel like uh, this would be at a point where the NCNC had an explicit disagreement with the North, or with the Northern, with the MPC, where they just can't abide by the numbers they're coming up with. Right, and right. That's why I thought it was important that the first census was disputed by the NPC-led government. Even if you say the South um, cooked up more numbers, obviously the second time the South cooked up more numbers, 
but the North just happened to cook up way more numbers. So they were fine with that. Right, to secure uh, that, that dominant, that that dominant number. Yeah. And that right. makes sense that the second time around, it would be the NCNC that um, discredited an, an um, alleged fraud in that census. Right. So to no avail. from both um, censuses, everything seems to be politically motivated. Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so in the, in the time where this is uh, essentially going on, we are also seeing the cracks in the AG, right? So it's important to note that um, prior, like when, uh, prior to, I guess, independence, uh, for the most part, uh, Awolowo maintained his position as premier of the Western region. And uh, he sent his deputy, Akintola, to essentially represent as the opposition party in parliament, right? While in parliament, it seems that um, uh, Akintola developed a close relationship with MPC leadership, particularly Tafawa Balewa and Samadubelo, right? He, he actually sat in a bunch of uh, uh, cabinet positions as a minister of works, minister of health, and I think the minister of aviation at, at some point as well, right? So what, what's your understanding of the growing rift between Awolowo and Akintola, especially by um, by 1962. Yeah, um, by 1962, this would have been 10 years after. In 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 some cases, uh, I think the main reason would be even though Awolowo pushed for a nationalist agenda, where he uh, espoused or proposed, you know, um, social welfare for everyone. In the form of healthcare, in the form of education for all Nigerians, his actions seemed isolationist, and that's when I when I say that I mean his political actions in the sense that he never really had any political office outside the Western region. So you can't even compare that to his 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 uh probably most comparable contemporary in the form of Nandi Azikwe, who at least held positions in Lagos and uh, had you know. A wide swath of Yoruba followers or Yoruba loyalists just because of his, um, his, uh, <laughs> as a journalist with the West African pilot, all the articles he wrote pushing for nationalism, um, and his political power in the Southwest. But Awolowo never quite developed that same, let's say, pan Nigerian, um, political mindset. Most of his, most of his followers, even till today, would most likely be Yoruba. Not to say that he didn't push for nationalist or socialist uh, agendas that would have positively affected the whole country. But as far as his political actions, um, they didn't really um, go past the southwestern region. If you, so, so if you observe that, uh, Chief Akitola for a long time was his deputy, right? <clears throat> but Akitola observing the political structure that was this new Nigeria would see just based on the facts that his political um, or the execution of his political strategies isn't working. And this would have been most evident in 1954 when the action group lost the majority in its own constituency, which is the Southwest. And <clears throat> Again, Akitola isn't quite our lower because he's from Ugbomosho, 
where uh, Awolowo is from, Ijebu Iremo, um, which is a uh, more, uh, let's say, pure Yoruba. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. But uh, Ogbomosho is a place where, uh, as far as I know, going back through the uh, 19th century, at some point was dominated by the Fulani. <clears throat> at some point. So Ogbomosho so had northern settlers. They had northern settlers. They had uh, even Akitola himself spoke Hausa. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if um, Awolowo sent him to go serve in the federal government and he uh, mingles with the northern political elite, he can mingle with them in a different way than Awolowo will ever be able to. Absolutely. If, if, you, if you understand what I'm saying. <clears throat> uh, so I, I do want to challenge the Awolowo thing though, because. Um, I think he definitely started out like focused on I think uh union of Yoruba people or like the unity of Yoruba people in Western region. I think, you know, later in the fifties prior to election, I think that started to evolve, especially when they started to contest for more seats beyond just the uh northern and re- western region, right? Because you you could see from the numbers I gave earlier, uh they won twenty four seats in the north, right? Like it's interesting that Action Group was able to secure two more seats than Nepu was able to secure in the North uh, in the 1959 election, right? So he, I think at, at, um, prior to the election, I think he started having a growing um, influence in terms of how he approached, um, uh, I guess, his politics or his ideologies, right? I think, I think that started to evolve beyond just maybe securing it for uh, the people in the Western region, but for doing that for um, the whole country, right? Um, actually so do you think I actually that, didn't know that. I actually didn't know that... Uh... The action group won 24 seats in the north, and that was more than the nephew one. But again, yeah. I guess I'll just ask if Awolo himself participated in any of those campaigns in the north, or if it was more or less his ideology that spurred that far. I, I think I think he I think it was I think I think he actively pushed it because what I also noticed is that um, in 1959 elections, um, Amadubelo was staunchly against Awolowo. And he felt like his ideology was a threat to the northern people, right? And that was the message he essentially put out there, right? I, I don't have um, the particular text in front of me right now, but <clears throat> he, he essentially he was clear that that was, his, that was his number one threat, or that's what he saw as the number one threat in a way that he did not see Nepi as a, an, as a threat. And that's also probably because there was a coalition that already existed between them, right? In a way that didn't really exist for Action Group, right? So, so I, I think because you know, even when we look further in, when we talk, we look at um, the people who essentially plotted the coup. They're, you know, it, it's interesting that most of those people were, you know, Easterners, but essentially wanted to put Awolowo in power. You know, so clearly his ideology had really started to take hold within the country, particularly because of some of the other things we're going to discuss later on. Um, I, I actually, yeah. uh, I, I, I definitely. Uh... I agree with what you're saying as far as um, him, his political strategy evolving just based on like the facts he just put forward. I think something else that um, maybe needs to be highlighted would be like how, how we mentioned earlier that Awolowo kind of more or less came from nothing. Like uh, his dad wasn't an elite or anything like that, or he didn't, he doesn't come from a long line of, rich people more or less he he more or less worked his way up this is important because 
he worked his way up and didn't. I think not. The only I'm only mentioning this because I think it's important because he worked his way up and he didn't feel he was just gonna enrich himself. Instead, he tried to enrich the rest of the country. No, the rest of the yoga people first, and the rest of the country by extension. And I'm gonna contrast this with because he was premier of the Western region. Right. He was the first premier of the Western region, and during that time, at least, there's no clear evidence of or any allegation of corruption. Which I think is particularly on his part. Yeah, which yeah. I think is you know you can celebrate that, like especially when we look at what yeah it's commendable, especially when you look at what Nigeria has kind of evolved into today. But then you also have to um, contrast that with Akitola, who when he was premier tried to build a new premiership house in the battle that was going to cost one eighty thousand pounds. Asked for a fleet of five luxury cars, which included two Cadillacs, one DeSoto, two Mercedes Benz, and a sixth Rolls Royce. So obviously, he is more corrupt. That's that's the only word I can use. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel that that might have driven at a. I don't know the roots of uh, uh, Akitola's corruption, but you know his his own. Um, regime or his own premiership regime is definitely rife with allegations and extensive evidence of corruption right and you know also he also was never elected into that position right like he never uh he, he essentially akintola essentially resigned uh, sorry awolowo resigned his position to essentially contest for for seats in the election right and then he essentially took over that position Right. Um, so I, I think I think that's that's a great point. So that coupled up with him being had that, having that growing relationship with the MPC and getting used to the benefits of being involved in the federal government, it's also clear why the idea of being an opposition wasn't as appealing to him because he wanted to get some of the spoils of um, being part of the majority. So in this first part, we covered MPC, AG, and NCNC formation and ideologies. Later, we questioned the census and its impact on the MPC and NCNC coalition. Finally, we, we touched on the political structure of the First Republic, particularly its parliamentary structure. In part two, things get heated, coalitions begin to fracture, internal power struggles ensue in the AG, and the people respond to the failure of leadership emphatically. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can write to me at two takes on the pod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media at two takes on the pod. That's TWO takes on the pod on Twitter and Instagram. Now, I'm looking forward to hearing from you, but make sure to come correct though. Music on this podcast is by Boye, and you can find him on Facebook at 1705 Music. That's 1705 Music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can find this wherever you find podcasts. And while you're there, show some love by giving this five stars, you know, or love or a like. You know the vibes. This has been Two Takes on the Pod. Thank you for listening.